Greetings and welcome to the 16th of September 2022 episode of the Greenwich Town for All Seasons show podcast. It's hosted by me. My name is Jeffrey Bingham Mead. I'm a direct descendant of the 17th century founders of the town of Greenwich, Connecticut, long known as the gateway to New England. As always, I'm so glad that you could join us for today's show. Now, founded on July 18, 1640, Greenwich, Connecticut is one of America's most interesting and extraordinary communities. This week, weekly podcast show is dedicated to exploring and revealing the history of Greenwich, Connecticut, one of America's most notable and dynamic communities. This is a special place that we call home. Now, whether your roots go back nearly 400 years, as mine do, or even 400 seconds or somewhere in between, whether you're here to stay or just passing through, well... I have news for you. We welcome you with open arms, and better still, you're a part of our history, so congratulations. The Greenwich Town for All Seasons show podcast is made possible by Site Design Associates, the Long Island Sound Institute, the Ambassador Museum, United States of America, Mr. Kevin M.J. O'Connor of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, and listeners like you everywhere. Coming up on today's show. On today's 16th of September 2022 show, we're going back to the Gilded Age, Victorian Summer, the Historic Houses of Belhaven Park, Greenwich, Connecticut by Matt Bernard. It's an incredible compilation of the homes in Belhaven, one of the first and most spectacular residence parks in America. On today's show, you're going to hear about McCord Cottage. It's still standing at 19 Bush Avenue. It was designed by Thorpe and Knowles Architects for William McCord in 1893. McCord was famous for constructing steel structures in New York City, making him a pioneer of Manhattan's soaring skyline. Now, on Greenwich Before 2000, which is an updated, revised edition of an earlier book, we're going to go back to the year 1913. What happened? Well, you'll find out. Now, in the early 20th century, Erwin Edwards authored a series of newspaper columns on Greenwich's historic taverns of long ago. One of them was known as the Bush Homestead. Today, it's known as the Bush Holly House, the headquarters of the Greenwich Historical Society. We'll share the text of that column with you. Now, considered to be the founder of landscape architecture in the United States, Frederick Law Olmsted was famous for co-designing many now-famous urban, public, and residential parks. Central Park in New York City was one of them. He designed that with his partner, Calvert Vaught, in 1857. He also headed a preeminent landscape architecture and planning consultancy, um, which was carried on by his sons, known as the Olmsted brothers uh, and all. Well, guess what? Some of his designs included Belhaven, Kackham Wood, uh, Bruce Park, I'm told, and other properties among the great estates. I'm going to be inviting you to a birthday party. I'll have some details about that. It's going to be held in mid-October, and I think you're going to want to come. 
On October 1st, Greenwich Historical Society's welcoming Pulitzer Prize-winning presidential historian Doris Kurtz Goodwin as guest note speaker, or keynote speaker. The occasion is Greenwich Historical Society's 90th anniversary celebration, and I'm going to have some details with that. I'll also have more about Discover Greenwich, creating a sense of place, creating the 90, celebrating the 90th year anniversary of the Greenwich Historical Society. I'll have news of exhibits, activities, and events for the public. My God, where did the summer go? This is going to be our last summer show of the season. It's the 16th of September, September 2022, and you've come to the right place to learn about the history of the town of Greenwich, Connecticut, one of America's most interesting and extraordinary communities. I'm going to have all this and more as history continues to unfold. Stay tuned. We'll be right back after these important messages. Site Design Associates is an award-winning landscape architecture studio located in historic Greenwich, Connecticut, and founded in 1979 by its principal, Peter F. Alexander, landscape architect. Committed to a unique multidisciplinary approach to professional landscape design and development, Site Design Associates' ambition is to foster a sense of excellence that is second to none from analysis to construction and maintenance with 35 years of experience, coupled with a sense of place, purpose, and history. Now, Peter F. Alexander is a member of the American Society of Landscape Architects. He's a graduate of the Rhode Island School of Design and a member of the American Planning Association. My friends, Peter F. Alexander and Site Design Associates is the title sponsor of the Greenwich Town for All Seasons show podcast, and we are very grateful for the support that we receive. You can learn more at sitedesignassociates.com. You can call Peter F. Alexander at 203-869-8632. Again, that's 203-869-8632. Or you can email him at peterA at sitedesignassociates.com. A special project of Site Design Associates and its principal landscape architect, Peter F. Alexander, the Greenwich, Connecticut-based Long Island Sound Institute consists of a community of professionals, researchers, academics, and concerned individuals progressively congruently working towards safeguarding Long Island Sound through research, historical perspective, and restoring ecological balance through management, policy, and education. The Long Island Sound Institute's aspiration is to promote modern planning and the implementation of the most up-to-date technologies available to conserve Long Island Sound for future generations. Long Island Sound Institute's studio is at 2 Greenwich Office Park West. To contact the Institute, email LISIHI2023 at gmail.com. That's L-I-S-I-H-I-2023 at gmail.com or call area code 203-869-8632. Again, that's 203-869-8632.
There are many ways to serve our country. A select number of individuals are nominated to serve as U.S. ambassadors in countries around the world. Their diplomatic assignments are vital to the U.S. maintaining peaceful and working relationships with global governments. The Ambassador Museum, United States of America, is based in Greenwich, Connecticut. AMUSA is in the process of organizing and implementing a virtual ambassador museum. This facility will be a tribute not just to the ambassadors, but also their families, experiences, and the millions of lives that have been affected by them. Its goal is to correct a stereotypical idea that large donors are the people who are selected as ambassadors of the United States and the notion that some in the State Department make a career out of being an ambassador. To learn more about the Ambassador Museum, United States of America, go online to amusa.info. That's, a, uh, that's amusa.info. Call 203-347-4604. Or you can also write to P.O. Box 5002, Greenwich, Connecticut, 06831. Well, thank you, Kevin M.J. O'Connor, Vice President of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, knowledgeable in the complexities of the financial markets with a passion for servicing clients and their financial needs. My friends, learn more at jeffreymatthews.com or call Kevin M.J. O'Connor at his Greenwich office, telephone 203-485-7595. Again, that's Kevin M.J. O'Connor his Greenwich office at 203-485-7595. You know, at the height of America's Gilded Age, the country's wealthiest families clustered in such places as Newport, Southampton, Bar Harbor, Tuxedo Park, and here in Greenwich, Connecticut, the enclave called Belhaven home to one of the first and most spectacular residence parks in the, in the entire United States of America. Successful magazine described Belhaven in 1902 as, quote, a non-perial spot, surpassing in beauty while equaling in elegance the pet of the fashionable world, Newport, an outshining tuxedo in brilliance and gaiety, unquote. There's a book out there that I want to call your attention to, and one that you can either borrow uh, at the Greenwich Library uh, in any of their branches, or you can purchase it, and the name of that book is Victorian Summer, The Historic Houses of Belhaven Park, Greenwich, Connecticut. It's authored by Matt Bernard. It's an incredible compilation of Belhaven's rich history. Now, it features beautiful photos and ephemera, a culmination of decades of work and research. It's an amazing book, very, very splendidly illustrated, and one that I highly recommend. Now, on today's show, we're going to go and we're going to explore one of these homes. In this particular case today, it's going to be McCord Cottage. Now, its principal owner was William McCord. It was built in 1893. The address uh, is 19 Bush Avenue. The architect was Thorpe and Knowles, and it was altered uh, sometime around or circa 1920. William Hewitt McCord, who lived from 1846 to 1912, was in some measure responsible for the rise of the Manhattan skyline. The firm of Post and McCord, founded in 
1877, erected the steel structures that what were once the world's tallest buildings. McCord did not live to see his company raise the most famous of them, the Chrysler Building, completed in 1930, and the Empire State Building completed the following year. But he did preside over the steel construction of the Madison Square Garden Tower, which was built in 1905, raised and uh, with the rest of the old Madison Square Garden in 1925. The Metropolitan Life Insurance Tower in 1909, then the tallest building in the world, and the Bankers Trust Building, built in 1912, with its famous pyramidal uh, crown. All three buildings were once considered glories of the New York City skyline, particularly the Stanford White-designed Madison Square Garden, which, along with the Brooklyn Bridge, was often named as New York's greatest architectural wonder. Stanford White was murdered there in 1906, shot by his lover's husband. Hmm. The first decade of the 20th century was an era of labor unrest, and McCord's company received a stiff dose of it when iron workers went on strike late in 1905. Post and McCord's non-union workmen were frequently attacked, sometimes with dynamite and in one case with ammonia splashed in the face. A, a suspicious number of serious accidents, some fatal, attended the building of the B. Altman department store on Fifth Avenue that year. Two men were caught trying to blow up another post in McCord worksite. Quote, we have been doing business at the risk of life and limb, unquote, said William C. Post, a son of the co-founder. Quote, there have been 65 assaults in all, and we have had have police to guard our men, unquote. McCord's refuge was his shingle-style cottage at 19 Bush Avenue, with its five acres of gardens, fruit trees, and lawn. McCord's choice of New Yorker's Alfred H. Thorpe, who lived from 1843 to 1917, and Wilbur S. Knowles, who lived from 1857 to 1944, befits a wealthy man who knew his architects. Early in his career, Thorpe helped Edward Tuckerman Potter design Mark Twain's picturesque Gothic house in Hartford, where Twain wrote The Adventures of Tom Sawyer and The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn. The house still stands as a popular tourist attraction. Thorpe was extremely well-educated, the sixth American architect to study at the École des Beaux-Arts in Paris, from which he returned, quote, a Frenchified dandy, unquote, according to the architecture historian Mossat Broderick. Thorpe attracted considerable attention in 1898 for proposing a revamping of Manhattan's shoreline, then blighted with old sheds and warehouses. His vision included elevated boulevards for walking and bicycling, much like today's Heinlein along the west side. Wilbur Knowles, who worked with Thorpe from 1892 to 1896, is the lesser known of the two. In 1887, he designed a sprawling and very attractive shingle-style house on Friendly Island in the St. Lawrence River for Edward W. Dewey, a New York clothier. This remains Knowles' signature work. Several of his house designs include round projections, suggesting that he may have taken the lead on McCord Cottage, which featured a huge rounded veranda, later glassed in. Of special note is McCord Cottage's busy but elegant hip roof, shot through 
with multiple hipped and eyebrow dormers, and five tall chimneys crowned with decorative pots. The design also features bay windows on all four sides. In keeping with the shingle style, there is no real attempt at symmetry. Country house design was just beginning, however, to cast a closer eye on symmetrical Europe. After McCord's death, the cottage was offered for sale in 1919 by his son for $80,000. After it was sold, a new owner remodeled McCord Cottage as a colonial revival sometime in the 1920s. The biggest change was the removal of the distinctive, very uncolonial, rounded, enclosed, off-centered piazza running along the southern façade, and then rounding the southwest corner, in favor of a handsome portico porch that now balanced the rear façade and framed a new symmetrical terraced landscape plan. The chimneys were simplified by stripping their decorative details and pots. Additionally, two large dormers on the third floor rear façade, one square and the other bayed, were replaced by three small gables that echoed the three on the front façade and brought the house more in line with the symmetrical ideal than popular. A later owner, 1930s, was Alexander J. Horlick, a former mayor of Racine, Wisconsin, and chairman of the Horlick Malted Milk Corporation. His daughter, Jeanette, would later marry another Greenwich household products heir, Zalman G. Simmons, Jr., of the Simmons Mattress family. Later still, George Gale Foster, one of the country's largest piano manufacturers under the name of American Piano Company, and then Aeolian American Corporation, inhabited McCord Cottage. Foster died at his winter home in Miami in 1950. His wife, Marion, retained the Belhaven House and died there in 1957. McCord Cottage exists today on approximately 1.89 acres, less this pe the peculiar, pe peculiar narrow 3.2-acre strip of land that ran outside of the park's boundaries, running parallel to the rear yards of the lots on the north side of Bush Avenue, all the way down to the top of Meadowwood Drive. That strip of land containing a contained a carriage house, cottage, and freestanding bowling alley. The carriage house exists today as a single-family home accessed via Mercia Lane. The main house has been extensively renovated and enlarged with a hip-roofed garage addition and enhanced by a swimming pool, but otherwise appears much as it did in the Roaring Twenties. Pleasant surprise at Coffee for Good. Located in the 1856 Solomon Mead Italianate-styled stone mansion at 48 Maple Avenue behind the Second Congregational Church, Coffee for Good has quickly emerged as one of Greenwich, Connecticut's top coffee houses. Its success is driven by a never-ending commitment to quality and inclusion. Coffee for Good shines as a unique nonprofit partnership between the Second Congregational Church and Abelis. It employs and trains people with disabilities through a self-sustaining platform so they can thrive in the community. 
1856 Solomon Mead House provide the 19th century style hip and unpretentious historical setting that evokes a setting filled with diverse people who are all inspired. Delightful staff, super friendly baristas, great coffee, pastries, and more. Coffee for Good provides free Wi-Fi, free parking, indoor and outdoor seating, with a relaxed local vibe that has become a popular study spot and destination for informal business meetings and gatherings. My friends, take it from me. The word about this gem has gotten around. Located in the historic 1856 Solomon Mead Italianate-styled stone mansion at 48 Maple Avenue in Greenwich, behind the Second Congregational Church, all part of the Putnam Hill Historic District and listed on the National Register of Historic Places, Coffee for Good is open daily, 8 a.m. to 5 p.m., except Sundays. You can learn more at coffeeforgood.org. It's easy to see why the Greenwich Historical Society's Tavern Garden Markets have been wowing shoppers this past summer. In a class by itself, the, ta- the Tavern Garden Markets feature a specially curated and alternating selection of locally grown and sourced products. Support local growers, producers, and artisans when you fill your basket and your home with the bounties of nature and unique handcrafted goods. Enjoy farm-to-table organic produce, fresh eggs, plants, and flowers. Savor the flavors of nutritiously prepared foods, fresh-baked breads, fruit pies, and donuts. Find the perfect gift among an array of vintage silver, jewelry, stationery, ceramics, and accessories. My friends, get out a piece of paper and mark these dates down. Mark your calendars for Wednesday, September 7th, and September 21st, 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. Now, here's a secret. Don't tell anyone I said this, but you know what? Early birds are welcomed at 9.30. Shh. All right. (laughs) Tavern Garden Markets are held in the lobby and tavern gardens of the Greenwich Historical Society's Bush Holly House campus at 47 Strickland Road. Free parking. Did you hear that? Free parking. Can't beat that, now can you? Tavern Garden Markets are sponsored by Yasmin Lloyds and Compass. Thank you. Greenwich Before 2000 was published as an updated and revised edition of Before and After 1776, the comprehensive chronology of the town of Greenwich. Now, Greenwich Before 2000 goes through the year 1999. It was adopted as a project by the Greenwich Historical Society and made possible by the generous support and in honor of Russell S. Reynolds Jr., who is a descendant of the founders of the town of Greenwich, Connecticut, and whose many charitable bequests have advanced the preservation of Greenwich's history for many years. We're very grateful, of course. Now, the book is available for borrowing purposes of the Greenwich Library System. You can also, I believe, get it at the Greenwich Historical Society's uh, gift store, museum shop, uh, or you could probably find it uh, via your favorite online bookseller. Today, I'm going to share with you what happened in Greenwich, according to uh, the book, from the year 1913. On January 3rd, the town meeting votes to appropriate $600,000 for town roads, dependent on permission from the legislature to raise the money by selling bonds. 
On April 4th of 1913, a mass meeting of citizens is held at Town Hall to organize relief for food flood sufferers um, in the Midwest. In uh, or on uh, April 11th, the town meeting asked the legislature to authorize the appointment of a sanitary inspector for milk, plumbing, and sewers. On, January, on April 29th, after a mass meeting in Rhinos Hall on the previous evening, all work on the roads and estates in Granite stops. As laborers strike for $2 for an eight-hour day, they settle for $2 and a nine-hour day. On June 13th, the Sanitary Committee decides to drain all swamps from Portchester to Sound Beach to combat mosquitoes. On June 20th, a record number of 42 students graduate from Greenwich High School. Of course, that number has grown tremendously since. <laughs> on uh, August 22nd, an 8-foot, 300-pound shark is caught off Sound Beach Cove. On September 5th, Putts Hill is to be repaired and widened, and North Street is to be paved for two miles north of the borough line and widened to 18 feet. On September 5th, local oysters and clams are infected, according to the health officer and the sewer commissioner, who propose a $100,000 sewage disposal plant. On October 31st, a Greenwich Citizen Gas Company is formed with capitalization of $500,000. Also, the town health officer gives notice, quote, All alleys, backyards, privy vaults, cesspools, and other like filthy places shall be efficiently cleaned and disinfected at regular intervals, as prescribed from time to time, unquote. On November 7th, Kent House concludes its 37th successful season. Many of its patrons have gone on to develop Bellhaven. On November 7th, after eight years of discussion, the town meeting finally authorizes sewers for Lake Avenue, Bridge Street, Prospect Avenue, Old Field Point Road, and Hamilton Avenue. On November 7th, historian Spencer Mead completes his transcription of all cemetery gravestones in the town. The two oldest cemeteries are in Sound Beach on Tomac Avenue, that would be Tomac Cemetery, and in Koskob on Strickland Road. On November 21st, 1913, the Princeton football team, 50 strong, spends the night at the Greenwich Country Club on its way to a game with Yale. It is estimated that over 3,000 autos will pass through Greenwich on their way to the game in New Haven. A new gas company announces that all its stock has been subscribed by Greenwich residents. St. Catherine and uh, or St. Catherine of Siena Roman Catholic Church is built in Riverside on the north side of the Post Road opposite Riverside Avenue. And also, finally, Greenwich and Putnam Avenues have been brightened by the installation of 40 new lights of 200 candle power. And that, my friends, is what happened um, in Greenwich, Connecticut in the year 1913, courtesy of the book Greenwich Before 2000, which you can get from the Greenwich Library System for borrowing purposes. And you could also check with the Greenwich Historical Society's museum store or also go online to your favorite online bookseller. You 
are listening to the Greenwich and Town for All Seasons show podcast hosted by Jeffrey Bingham Mead. That's me, a direct descendant of the 17th century founders of the town of Greenwich, long known as the gateway to New England. The Greenwich and Town for All Seasons show podcast is made possible by Peter F. Alexander, Landscape Architect of Site Design Associates, the Long Island Sound Institute, the Ambassador Museum United States of America, Kevin M.J. O'Connor of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, and listeners like you everywhere. Thank you. Well, back in the summer of 1920, specifically um, in August, uh, Erwin Edwards of the Greenwich News and Graphic wrote a series of articles about six old taverns that existed in the town of Greenwich. And uh, one of those I'm going to present to you, if you have been to the campus of the Greenwich Historical Society, you will recognize it immediately. In the article, it's known as the Bush Homestead, but we know it today as Bush Holly House, uh, which is the headquarters of the Greenwich Historical Society, located at 47 Strickland Road. So uh, we're going to go back in time, as we do so often here on the podcast, and um, I'm going to present to you uh, Erwin Edwards' comments about the Bush Homestead. South of the Post Road, Boston Post Road, at Coscob, about two stones throw away from that highway. Boy, you better have a very strong arm to do that. (laughs) If you walk by there, you'll understand why. On the old Strickland Road and near the old Indian burying ground, by the way, it is not an Indian burying ground. Um, That cemetery, by the way, off of Strickland Road, if I may interject, um, is Greenwich's second oldest uh, cemetery, the oldest one being Tomac Cemetery in Old Greenwich. But this one um, is a town cemetery, a community one. Um, that was um, that is the second oldest one, right near Strickland Road and the Coscup Mill Pond. So back to the story. Let's see. Near the, the Indian Burying Ground, which it's not, which is by the roadside, is a dwelling that would attract attention if its history were not known. There are those who say that it is the oldest house in Greenwich, and there are records which seem not to dispute that assertion. It is unlike any other house in town. It doesn't strike one at first sight as being aged, nor does it have the appearance of a modern building. Neither does it resemble in any way a New England farmhouse or an old-fashioned lean-to common in colonial days. Some might say that it, wa- that it was of the rambling style of architecture. It certainly shows that the man who built it had ideas of his own. Its length would seem to indicate that economy in that direction was not a motive in its construction. It is two stories and half high, and has two broad piazzas which extend the entire length of the house at the front, and give you the thought that they were not put there especially to add to the appearance of the house, but comfort, case, and a charming water view, which has been taken into consideration. If you were to go to the rear of the dwelling, you wouldn't think it was the same house. There is where you would see that it is an old building, the long old-fashioned lean-to being there, conspicuous, with other evidences in its construction that make age apparent. But step aside at the dwelling, and a vista of the past comes before you. 
The quaint rooms, the steep, crooked, and narrow stairs, the doors, the closets, yes, the slaves' quarter. In the garret, everything makes you think of quote-unquote redcoats and the Indians, all tell you that the house was built long ago, long when Greenwich was a forest and nature in full sway. The imagination sees it standing there in the days of the Indians when Greenwich was first settled, and during the Revolution, a feeling of awe comes over one if such things are ever given a thought. Step out on the second-story porch, and you can imagine what the view once was. It must have been charming. You can see where Strickland Brook and the salt water meet, and in that mingling turned the big water wheel of the Coscob gristmill, which stood across the way from the house for long years, but is now gone. This house, with a history, was not a tavern in the ordinary meaning of that word, and yet it was, in all but one way, for its latch string was always out for a friend or stranger, and none were more cordially received within its doors than the Patriot. Its hospitable owner gave all a cordial welcome and made them sit down to a bountiful spread with good cheer aplenty. Thus he entertained all his guests, and there were many, and this without price. The old dwelling dates back to when Coscob was the home of a tribe of Indians, when the waterfront was a dense forest, and the brook and the river were in their primitive state. It was about the year 1650 that Captain David Bush, a well-to-do skipper who sailed the sound between New York and Boston, was a trader, coursed up the Mianus River. A violent storm had overtaken him, and he was nearing the mouth of this broad stream. He managed to turn the prow of his launch schooner into what he thought was one of the many harbors along the sound. Instead, he found himself in the mouth of a river, which, as his eyes scanned its surface and surroundings, appeared to be navigable. He didn't let go his anchor for harbor, so was his intentions, but he headed his vessel up the river, which the Indians had named Mayano, quote-unquote beautiful stream, unquote, and he must have thought so too. For he kept his course for three or four miles when his keen eye spied what seemed to be a cozy nook in the bend of the river, which flows a little branch of itself to the northwest. He headed for this nook and cautiously felt his way into it. To his surprise, he discovered that he was in a snug harbor, and he threw over his anchor. So taken was he with it and the surroundings that he made up his mind to have a home there and retire as a trader, for he had enough of this world's goods to make him not fear want or privation. He speedily made, was made aware, however, that the Indians were fond of this quiet and safe retreat, hidden as it was. They watched his every movement, for they were very suspicious of its entrance and very curious to find what his intentions were and why he had come into their harbor. He managed to allay their fears by signs and gifts that his coming was not hostile to them and that he wanted to pitch his wigwam among them. More smoking the pipe of peace, 
or after smoking the pipe of peace, he succeeded with due ceremony after distributing trickens and such things among them in getting their consent to occupy a strip of land along the harbor. Opposite the waterfront, he built for himself a home, than which there was none like it in size, attractiveness, inconvenience, and in its furnishings in the New Haven colony. So it came about that the house of Captain David Bush came into wide repute. For long years, the captain and his descendants lived there, respected and honored for their generous hospitality. It was the center of what was the social life of those days. General Washington and George Putnam were guests at the Bush house and met there to partake of the good things which it offered, as well as to discuss affairs of vital importance to the colony. Captain Bush had a winsome daughter who had not escaped the gallant eyes of General Putnam and who was not in the least cold and forbidding to her. She, it was, the colonial belle whom General Putnam escorted to the ball at Pexland the night before the British General Tryon's raid on Horseneck. The homestead remained in the possession of the Bush family until the death of the last member of it, or until nearly a hundred years ago. In recent years, it has been known as the Holly House. Well, my friends, it's time for <laughs> for Judge Frederick Augustus Hubbard uh, to be front and center in terms of our um, attention today. You know, uh, this uh, I, I'm so glad that there are so many of you that find this uh, particular segment of the uh, Greenwich Town for All Season Show podcast so enjoyable um, because it, Judge Hubbard was such a prolific and, and gifted writer. He was a wonderful storyteller, and he had a remarkable way of encapsulating what was going on in Greenwich, Connecticut during the latter years of the 19th century and into the first third of the 20th century, um, because he was there uh, to, uh, to see it all and to um, present it. He used the pseudonym Ezekiel Lemondale, one writing about what he called Cracker Barrel stuff, and were very indebted to Frank Nicholson, who collected Judge Hubbard's uh, articles publishing them in compendium form as Greenwich History, The Judge's Corner, 150 newspaper columns by Frederick A. Hubbard, who were selected, edited, and indexed by Frank Nicholson, to whom we, we really do owe a debt of gratitude. We really do. Today's column is number 133, and it was published on April 4th, 1932. Uh, the uh, headline, More About Greenwich Avenue, Peter Acker's Corner, Temperance Society, and Saloon in the same building. Well, that must have been colorful. Uh, and the first meat market in Greenwich. So, without further ado, let's get started, shall we? In 1854, the road to Piping Point, now Greenwich Avenue, started at Main Street, now Putnam Avenue, and ran south through the farm territory described last week. Looking south, on the right hand was Peter Acker's Corner, now the Pickwick Corner, and on the left was the tavern owned by Augustus Lyon, and now the site of the Pickwick Arms Hotel. While Mr. Acker never took part in public affairs, he was a, he was a genial old gentleman with a long, fine beard and a personal friend of his many customers in his general store. He delighted in an extensive garden, 
with the first asparagus bed ever planted in Greenwich. It extended south along the avenue to the property of Henry Held. In the garden was a dove a dovecote where the only pouter pigeons were raised. These independent striding and strutting blown-up birds occupying a lot of room on the dusty road were a source of great amusement to their owner. Where the Round Hill Farms brick building, that would be at number 22 and 24 Greenwich Avenue, now stands was a small frame structure of two stories and a pitched roof. A pitched single roof, shingle roof, I stand corrected. This building apparently had been built in the Acker Garden and probably belonged to him. The town clerk, Samuel Close, occupied the first floor for a short time, and the second floor constituted the first barber shop in the village, operated by a colored man who hailed from Portchester and kept open only one or two days uh, in the week. Later, this room was occupied by the Greenwich Mutual Fire Insurance Company, John G. Reynolds and John Dayton being active in the management. The little building also had the distinction of being the recruiting building in 1861 in charge of Lieutenant Benjamin Wright, who examined and measured applicants for enlistment in the volunteer service. Only a few years have passed since this historic little building gave way for the brick building erected by the late Joseph H. Lockwood for a drugstore. A photograph of Pickwick Corner, taken in 1878 by Isaac L. Mead, shows the little building. And so if you see the, the book Masonry in Greenwich, you can see that on page 52. The avenue did not begin to become a business street until about 1870, although following 1854 there had been some building on the east side of the street, but the present description applies only to the west side, leaving the east side to be considered in a lighter article. After the decease of Peter Acker, and in the spring of 1872, the famous garden was cut up into 25-foot building lots and were sold from $1,800 to $2,200. Among those who bought was John Bowles, who erected a most substantial frame building of three stories, still standing at number 44. It was erected in 1872, and considerable historical interest attaches to it. The first floor consisted of a saloon the most ornate in town, and the third floor was a public hall called the Linwood, after Boss Tweed's residence. This hall was rented for various purposes. One of the occasional tenants was a temperance society. It amused Mr. Bowles to tell how cosmopolitan the Linwood was, with a bar room on the first floor and a temperance society on the third. It was in this hall that the local Greenback Party met to nominate town officials for the fall election in 1877 or 1878. Other purchasers of the lots uh, during the 19 well during the 1870 decade were George E. Schofield, George Duff, the watch preparer Henry B. Marshall, and Henry Held. The latter acquired the largest number of lots, and one of them he sold to B. Frank Trumpy, who erected a frame building for a grocery store. In 1878, he sold to the borough a lot 20 foot wide for $800, upon which was erected the Amagerome Truck House. It's at number 66. 
Next to the truck house adjoining it on the north stands a building erected long before the street was widened. This building afterwards sold to Mr. Held by Ezra S. Burr for $1,800 stood upon the site of an old tan yard. Here the farmers carried hides to be tanned probably before the Revolutionary War. It was a lonely-looking pitch-roof building where later Ezra S. Burr and his son Frank for a number of years conducted a restaurant and oyster bar. It is still owned by Mr. Burr's daughter, who lives in Waterbury. It is occupied by a candy store and a restaurant with an, with an apartment on the second floor. The old-fashioned roof has been concealed by a false front with an elaborate cornice. Several lots north of the Burr building remained open for a number of years. They were owned by Mr. Held, and the cellars had been excavated. Probably someone wanted the, the, fill, the filling, and Mr. Held was willing to anticipate the construction of business buildings. But on this land, for many years before the Civil War stood, well back from the street, two neat little houses with a bank wall in front and three or four stone steps leading to a flower garden on either side of the entrance walk. One of these houses was torn down, but the other was moved to Lake Avenue, number 21, and is owned by Mrs. Grace Stanford. The moving took place in the winter when the sleighing was good and placed on skids. A double yoke of Colonel Meade's oxen rapidly hauled the little house up the hill and to its present location. That was probably in 1860 or 1861. Later, these vacant lots were sold to the late Henry Webb, who erected what was then called Webb's Row. It is easier to identify this building by the cornice, which extends on the same level over three stores, and one of which belongs to Goldstein Brothers. The vacant lots, as they looked in 1879, appear in an illustration of Greenwich Avenue on page 25 of the volume Masonry in Greenwich, where the Burr Building, with its pitched roof, is also seen. Henry Held sold meat from a wagon for many years before 1854. He lived at what was known as Held's Point, where summer boarders were entertained until long after the Civil War. The property was afterwards acquired by the late Commodore Benedict. But in 1858, and with the avenue widened, it was Mr. Held's ambition to establish a market in the village to be open only in the forenoon of business days. This building, which still stands at number 74 and is known as the Miller Department Store, was originally but 24 by 40 feet, but has been enlarged on the north side by including a driftway 10 feet in width. Here, Mr. Held opened his market and, without the delivery of purchases at first, conducted it for many years. Acacia Lodge, AF and AM, occupied the second floor from 1858 to 1879, the rent for the first 10 years being $75 a year. The land and buildings that have been described comprised about half of the business section after the widening of 1854. Next week, we will continue the west side, describing, describing sorry, its appearance immediately after the widening and as it remained for many years thereafter. 
Having finished the west side, we shall start again at the head of the avenue and cover the east side, but next week and for the rest of the west side. That was column number 133, published on April 14, 1932, by Frederick A. Hubbard. Well, my friends, on October 1st, the Greenwich Historical Society will have the honor of welcoming Pulitzer Prize-winning presidential historian Doris Kearns Goodwin as its special guest and keynote speaker at the Society's 90th anniversary celebration. She is the author of seven critically acclaimed and New York Times bestselling books. Goodwin was awarded the Pulitzer Prize in History for No Ordinary Time, Franklin and Eleanor Roosevelt, The Home Front in World War II. A well-respected television commentator, Goodwin regularly appears in documentaries, news programs, and late-night talk shows. In 2020, she served as the executive producer of the History Channel's miniseries event, Washington, which explores the lesser-known details of America's first president and reveals the arc of his development as a leader. Goodwin's interest in presidential leadership was inspired by her appearance as a 24-year-old White House fellow working directly for President Johnson during his last year in the White House and later assisting him in preparation of his memoirs. At the Historical Society event, Goodwin will share timeless insights and the keen perspective drawn from her recent book, Leadership in Turbulent Times. The culmination of five decades of research on President Abraham Lincoln, Theodore and Franklin D. Roosevelt, and Lyndon Johnson, all who share a remarkable ability to meet moments of seemingly insurmountable challenge with vision, resilience, and ultimate service to the common good. An inspiration to leadership in all walks of life, the theme especially resonates as we reflect on this 90-year milestone and Greenwich Historical Society's own history, flanked by eras of significant turmoil and uncertainty. At the time of our founding in 1931, the country, that's the Greenwich Historical Society, of course, the country was in the throes of the Great Depression and the Dust Bowl. Today, the global pandemic, rising economic inequality, and climate change present both unprecedented challenges and new opportunities to community, business, and government leaders. In her book, Goodwin strives to make leadership less elusive and more practical through specific stories that can provide a guide and inspiration to show how, with ambition, self-reflection, and perseverance, leadership skills can be developed and strengthened. My friends, to learn more about the Greenwich Historical Society's 90th anniversary celebration and about historian Doris Kern Goodwin's upcoming appearance, please go online to GreenwichHistory.org. Your next hire is just a coffee away. Hire a good employee. My friends, Coffee for Good in the historic Solomon Mead House at 48 Maple Avenue behind the Second Congregational Church is an on-the-job training platform with Abilis for people with disabilities. Its graduates have the technical and professional skills to be employed in jobs in the hospitality, service, and retail industries. 
How does Coffee for Good benefit your business? Well, improve employee retention, increase customer loyalty, assistance with the job transition, on-site job coaches, federal tax credits, skills tailored to your business, and a diverse workforce. I encourage you to speak with Helen Lebrano and Alan Gunsberg, the Employer's Advisory Team at employer at coffeeforgood.org. Again, that Helen Lebrano or Alan Gunsberg, the Employer's Advisory Team at employer at coffeeforgood.org. My friends, learn more at coffeeforgood.org forward slash employers. Visit Coffee for Good and see them in action. Considered to be the founder of landscape architecture in the United States of America, Frederick Law Olmsted was famous for co-designing many now famous urban, public, and residential parks. Central Park in New York City was designed as a city public park by Olmsted and his partner Calvert Vall in 1857. He headed the preeminent landscape architecture and consultancy uh, in late 19th century America. After he died, this was carried on and expanded by his sons, Frederick Jr. and John C., under the name Olmsted Brothers during America's Gilded Age. Now, I have to tell you, this is really wonderful, but uh, the Olmsted Brothers did quite a number of designs uh, here in Greenwich uh, in terms of landscape, and um, those include the landscape plan for Belhaven Park, uh, or Belhaven as we know it today, uh, the development known as uh, Keckham Wood, also uh, Sabine Farm up in Round Hill, and other properties among the great estates. I understand that Olmsted Brothers even drafted a landscape uh, plan for Greenwich Harbor. I don't think that that was ever carried out, uh, but um, it was one that uh, was uh, drafted uh, according to the to the local press at the time. Now, I have a little invitation for you. I want you to mark your calendars for Friday evening, October 14th, and that is going to be a very special birthday party. In partnership with Site Design Associates, who is the principal sponsor of this podcast, uh, as well as with uh, others, we're going to be holding a celebration for Olmsted's 200th birthday. He actually was born uh, 200 years ago in March, but we're, we're just <laughs> we're catching up. Uh, but there have been celebrations in New York and um, elsewhere uh, where uh, Frederick Law Olmsted's uh, work and talents were, were shared and, um, and are still preserved uh, today, of course. And, um, and so why not Greenwich? Why not? Um, the event is going to be held in the second floor meeting room of Greenwich's old town hall. That would be the senior center at 299 Greenwich Avenue. That's going to be from 6 p.m. to 9 p.m. Now, our scheduled featured speaker is Matt Bernard. Um, we do have a segment on the on the show every other um, every other week. Uh, he is the author of Victorian Summer, the Historic Houses of Belhaven Park, Greenwich, Connecticut. Um, it's a wonderful book. It's very richly illustrated, and Matt Bernards has spent many years researching and uh, documenting the uh, the old houses and historic homes of uh, Belhaven, and um, that includes, of course, the fact that uh, Belhaven Park. 
uh, was uh, the landscape design was done by none other than the Olmsted brothers, and we're very, very privileged uh, to uh, to have that. Now, copies of his book uh, will be available for uh, for sale. Um, he will be there to assign books, and also he is going to be delivering a presentation. Now, we're going to have more details coming um, in uh, in future shows, so uh, please uh, check on us. And also, you can contact me at GreenwichAtownForAllSeasons at gmail.com for more information. One of the other things that we um, are asking for is that we would like to ask additional sponsors to come on board. We really want to make this a, um, a great event, uh, celebrating the, uh, the legacy of Frederick Law Olmsted as it is found here in Greenwich, Connecticut, um, into the 21st century. So, uh, please... Um, you can contact me again at Greenwich, a town for all seasons at gmail.com. You can also call me. I'll give you my mobile phone number. It's area code 808-721-0306. Again, this is a celebration for Frederick Law Olmsted. He was famous for co-designing many famous urban, public, and residential parks. Of course, Central Park in New York City is the most famous one, um, but he also did additional work through his sons, through the uh, firm that they uh, continued um, here in Greenwich, Connecticut. So I look forward to um, our celebration that will be coming up again. That's going to be on October 14 in the second floor meeting room of Greenwich's Old Town Hall and Senior Center, 299 Greenwich Avenue from 6 p.m. to 9 p.m. Well, as always, I thank you for tuning in to the 16th of September 2022 episode of the Greenwich Town for All Seasons show podcast. My name is Jeffrey Bigham Mead, a direct descendant of the 17th century founders of the town of Greenwich, Connecticut, and it is my pleasure to be your host. Founded on July 18, 1640, Greenwich, Connecticut is one of America's most interesting and extraordinary communities. You and your Greenwich stories are a part of our history, and we are glad to have you. Now, the Greenwich A Town for All Seasons show podcast is made possible by Site Design Associates, the Long Island Sound Institute, the Ambassador Museum, United States of America, Mr. Kevin M.J. O'Connor of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, and listeners like you everywhere. You can always contact me at GreenwichAtownForAllSeasons at gmail.com, learn more about the show, and listening and listen to past episodes by going to GreenwichAtownForAllSeasons.blogspot.com. Both the show and I are on Facebook and Twitter. Speaking of Facebook, look for and join any of a number of Greenwich, Connecticut groups. These include, you know you're from Greenwich if, Images of Greenwich, Connecticut, Greenwich Connections, Byram Neighborhood Association, Friends of Byram Park, the, Nor oh, the Portchester, New York Historical Archive, and so much more. Now, our next show will be one week from today, and that will be September 23rd, year 2022. My friends, have yourself a great weekend. It looks like it's going to be a very sunny and a wonderful late summer time. So please go out and enjoy it. Take good care. See you next week. Bye-bye now. Thank you.